All right, good morning, church. It's good to be here together. Uh, We have been telling a story for almost a year now. Uh, We'll be finishing up in in November uh, or early December. Might be some changes. But uh, we've been telling the greatest story, the most important story that's ever been told. And it's the story of, of God, primarily. And it's the story of the people that He created and the way that He has brought us back to Himself through the person of Jesus. And we've been telling this story, and we've got this little chart here to help us remember the, the major events of this story, to see how they all tell one continuous story. And uh, we've been doing some fun little motions together. And so, let's see, I'm going to challenge you today. If you can do it without looking up on the screen and just looking at, at handsome me, uh, I'll give you a cookie. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure something out. Uh, all right, so you ready? Let's try this from the top. We've got God... Creation, fall, promise, flood, (laughs) tower, I'm not going to get a cookie, patriarchs, exodus, law, conquest, judges, kingdom, divided, exile, return, silence, and Jesus. There we are. We're up to the person of Jesus. We've been talking about him. Cannot talk about are Jesus enough? Um, I wanted to ask this question, though, to start. Man, what if, what if you had one week to live? Like, the doctors told you you got seven days, and then for sure you're going to die. Um, the question that you know, I was thinking about is, man, what would I do with that last week of my life? And I was thinking, am I going to go, you know, Tim McGraw, right, live like I am dying, right? Skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, right? Fu, Fu Manchu, was that the name of the bull? Um, what would, you, would you live it up? Like, you know, I've always wanted to travel to Europe. Maybe I would just go spend that last week in Europe seeing things that I've always wanted to see. Um, maybe, you know, I'm a sports nut. Maybe if there's a, you know, the NBA finals are going on at that time, Lord willing, or some cool sporting event that I would go see that. Um, I don't know what it would be for you. Maybe you always wanted to go bungee jumping or skydiving. Uh, maybe you say, hey, I'm going to die. Let's just spend all my money. Let's just blow it. Let's go to Vegas, right? Get a bunch of money, shopping spree time. Um, you know, what? go somewhere I've never gone and always wanted to go. Go do something that I've never done, always wanted to do. What would it be that you would do? You'd go crazy. Maybe the whole week you would eat gluten. (laughs) And I started thinking like, but but the reality is like, man, I'm going to die in a week and none of that matters. Remember we we talked about Solomon and Ecclesiastes? I'm a vapor. That's all meaningless. I thought, man, would I, if I have one week left, my prayer is that my first thought would be, I've got seven days I've got seven days to tell everyone that I know that doesn't know Jesus to plead with them, to beg of them, to give their lives to him. If I've got these precious moments before I die, I've got one last shot. And my prayer is that that, that's how I would want to spend the rest of my time. And in that sense, I think Tim McGraw's right. We we do need to live like we're dying. We don't know when our last day is. And in here, we're going to come up to the last week of Jesus' life. As, as God, he knew he was going to die. And we ask ourselves, man, what did Jesus do with the last week of his life? How did he spend the last seven days that he had before they would lay him into the tomb? And we're going to look at that this morning. And we see Jesus, who, who knows that he has one week left. And the weight of the sins of the world are on his shoulders. And ever since the garden, all of the prophecies, all of the promises have been pointing toward this man who's coming. And now he's here, the climax of the story. And how is he going to spend this last week before he dies? 
I want to zoom in on that this morning. And we're going to see with Jesus there are three things that that we have to know, that the people of Israel had to know, that you and I this morning have to know about Jesus, and that is that he is the king, that, that he is the judge, and that he is the savior. And we look at this this morning in his last week. The first thing we're going to see is Jesus is the king. We'll look at the triumphal entry. Now, here's the scene. He comes into Jerusalem. It's, it's the day one of his last week. And if you've been tracking us uh, with the story, um, you know that all three years of Jesus' life of his public ministry has actually been pretty private, right? Like, what did he, when, when he heals somebody, what did he say? Don't tell anybody. He'd raise, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd uh, heal someone. He'd have a demon come out of them. And he would tell that demon, when they'd start to proclaim who Jesus was, shut your mouth. Don't tell anybody who I am. When these big crowds would start to gather around him, he would escape, right? I mean, Jesus has really gone out of his way to build up his own popularity. But now, what we're going to see, the beginning of this last week, he goes, it's showtime. It's time to take this thing as public as possible. It's, it's time to be put on full display. Why? Because this is the time the Father has appointed. Listen, the, the, the Pharisees have been trying to get him killed almost since day one of his public ministry. But he's God. You can't kill God. Look at what he says in John 10. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to, and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. He says, my Father will say when I live and when I die. I have the authority. No one on earth can touch me if it's not time to touch me. And he goes, now, here, this week, this is the end, and I am going to lay my life down for you. You're not taking it from me. And what we're going to see this morning is this is the perfect time for Jesus to die. All of the prophetic stars will align. You see, this week um, that he's going to be walking into here, it's, it's what we call Passover. And, and really, actually, that's a week-long celebration. These, the, the Jews knew how to party, okay? It was a week called the Feast or Festival of Unleavened Bread. And the pinnacle of the week was the celebration of the Passover meal. And what would happen if you were a good Jewish boy or a good Jewish girl, you would actually come wherever you lived, in Israel or around the world, you would make, this was one of the three times over the course of a year, that you would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, right? Like, the, like the, the good Jewish boys and girls would come and celebrate this in the capital city. So they'd make this big pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So there's over two million Jews, they say, most scholars would agree, are packed into this city. And not just the people that have come for the festival, but we just saw, remember when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? John 12, 9 says that all these people from Galilee wanted to see this guy that could raise people from the dead. I'm sure they all had a bunch of people that they, loved ones that they had lost, that they wanted Jesus to bring back from the dead. They wanted to see this guy. So they're all packing into the town as well. The scene is set. The audience is full. And Jesus is ready to put his glory on full display. And we look at this, you look at the last week, a snapshot here, day one, Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday, right? It's the Sunday before we celebrate Easter. Some say it actually was on Monday, but Palm Monday, no, it doesn't sound as cool. Let's be real, nobody likes Mondays, right? Um, Jesus, he's going to present himself here on Palm Sunday as the king, as the chosen one, as the Messiah. And look what it says in verse 2. It says, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. So here's this little colt. Isn't that cute, right? Probably was a little bit bigger than that, but this guy was marching so boldly, so proudly. I just had to show you. Um, 
And this is so cool. He goes, I want you to go get a donkey for me. Is that a colt is the foal of a donkey, right? He says, I want you to go, there's going to be a donkey waiting for me. Go get it. And this is, again, Jesus in complete control. He knows, I, I know exactly where the donkey is that I'm going to ride. I know exactly when I'm going to die. I am laying my life down. And then he says here, and notice no, no detail is, is, uh, is on accident here. He says, no one's ever sat on this donkey. See, when they would use farm animals for farming, uh, when they were ridden for, for kind of work purposes, they would be no longer usable for sacred purposes. He says, what I'm about to do is so holy. This, this donkey, it can't just be a farmed donkey. It's got to be one that's never been ridden on before. Go get that donkey and bring it to me. And so Jesus, he rides into Jerusalem on this donkey. There are millions of people there that have come to celebrate the Festival of Unleavened Bread, have come to see the Razor of the Dead, and now he's going to show himself as the king. And this actually, if you go over to Matthew, Matthew, he, proph- he says, this is a fulfillment of another prophecy. You go 500 years earlier, Zechariah, he said that this was going to happen. This exact day was going to come to fruition. Look at Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, which is kind of the hill in the area. It's a synonym for Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey? Not just any donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zacharias says this guy's going to come and he's going to be riding on the colt of a donkey just like he did. Now, despite what we often, we kind of think of this as like, oh, Jesus is just kind of coming in humbly, like he's on Eeyore, right? And just kind of humbly walking into town. And, and yes, it says there's, there's humility here. But it was actually very common for a king in the ancient Middle East to ride in on a donkey. We see that in 1 Kings. Solomon rode into town and his coronation, it was on a mule. So this wasn't an uncommon practice, but there is a particularly cool thing that he's doing with this picture. Now, if you go to the, the people's reaction, okay, look at how they respond when Jesus comes riding into town. It says, many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. The crowd is going nuts. They're losing their minds. They're just ripping off clothes and throwing them on the street for Jesus to walk on. They're ripping tree branches off and just waving them like they just don't care, right? This is, this is our coming Savior. They're, they're celebrating him. Now, this would not have been a weird scene. This would not have caused the Romans to freak out at all because this is actually a very typical way for them to celebrate this time of year. See, if you go over to the Psalms, they, these, these weren't just words. They were actually, they were singing a song. There were these pilgrim songs in Psalms 115 through 118. And every year at this time, they would be singing this song on their way to Jerusalem. Okay, it was just like one big Jewish uh, Disney movie, right? Hey, make way for King Jesus. And they're kind of like, you know, announcing him coming. And so they're just kind of celebrating like they normally would. And then the one thing in particular that they cry out here in these pilgrim songs is Hosanna. The word Hosanna, it means save us now. There's an urgency, a dependency on someone to save them. But remember what their mindset was? We go, oh, oh, okay, they're, they're putting their faith in Jesus, dying on the cross for their sins. No, that's not what they had in mind when they sang this song. What they had in mind when they sang this song was, look at what they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in the, in the coming kingdom of our father David. There was this prophesied king who would come from the line of David who would establish his rule forever. 
He was the eternal king. And this king would rule and reign in Jerusalem. They were expecting this political king to come and wipe out those stinking Romans, right? That's what they're anticipating. Someone's going to come. They're going to finally, we're going to be restored after hundreds and hundreds of years of being slaves to other nations. We'll finally be free. Save us now, Jesus. And in particular, this line that they quote here is from Psalm 118, which is known as the Conqueror's Psalm. And this song was sung, you remember during the 400 years of silence, we said that the Syrians were ruling them, and this small band of Jews, they revolted against the Syrians. Remember we said that it was Judah Maccabee, and he led that Maccabean revolt. And they drive the Syrians out. They take the temple back. And on Christmas Day, they clean the temple out. That's where we get the celebration of Hanukkah. And, and so they clean it out, and this is what they're expecting They're expecting another revolt like this, that Jesus is going to come and say, let's drive out the Romans. Save us now, Jesus. Blessed is the king, the eternal king, coming in the line of David. That's what they want. And Jesus is. He's the eternal king from the line of David. And we know him as the Lion of Judah. And that is exactly who he is. And and, and in fact, man, if you read, we don't have time for it this morning, but you go back and you read Daniel chapter 9. These incredible prophecies. And you do the math. You carry it out. The exact day that Daniel said that Jesus would come is this Palm Sunday. He called it. This is exact. God's in control the entire time. Jesus has come to save, but not like they thought. See, what's interesting, in the, in the ancient Middle East, there was a couple ways that a king could ride into the city. And, and one of them was on a donkey, yes, but the other one was on a white horse with a chariot. And when they came riding on a white horse on a chariot, that meant war. Either they were celebrating the victory of a war, or they were about to go into war. But Jesus didn't come on a white horse, did he? He came in on a donkey. The donkey symbolized peace. See, when Jesus rode into town, he came to offer peace. But not by overthrowing the Romans. Not by overthrowing the Gentiles. What did he come to overthrow? The people's sin. That's what he came to deal with. And he came to make peace with God. Remember, he, he, he didn't come to kill the Romans, to kill the Gentiles. Jesus actually came to bring peace to the Gentiles, to actually make this new redeemed people where he would take the Jews and the Gentiles and make them one person, one people, the bride of Christ, the church. This is not at all what they were expecting. In fact, the next verse in Zechariah, when he makes that prophecy about the, the, the donkey, The next thing he says is that he, Jesus, shall speak peace to the nations. This is what Jesus has come. He's come to bring peace, but not like they wanted. He did not come to kill the Romans. He came to die for the Romans. You see, they wanted him so badly to attack the Roman army, to drive them out. But what Jesus is going to do next, he's actually going to turn and attack the Jewish people and their corrupt worship of God. Look at what he does on day two. We see that Jesus is the king, but number two, Jesus is the judge. And he's going to clear the temple out. Now, this is the next day, Monday. Okay, some people would say Tuesday, but if we do the math from Sunday, it'd be, it'd be Monday. Now, I love this story. And the reason I love this story is because it shows us another side of Jesus, right? Like most of the time, uh, oh, there it is, Sunday, Monday. All right, we're there. Uh, most of the time, we see Jesus like this, right? We think of Jesus, the precious moments edition, Right? We think of Jesus like little children in his lap, a a lamb nuzzling up against his leg, right? Just kind of peacekeeping uh, Jesus on the flannel graph. But what I love here is we get incredible Hulk Jesus, right? 
I mean, he comes in to Hulk smash, right? Is that what? And he just comes to wipe this temple out. It says, I'm like, get him, Jesus. Yeah. Right? This is like WWF Jesus. Until I realize, oh, what he came to attack was the same thing that he's pointing out in my own heart. Look at what happens in this scene. Verse 15. Continue on in our story. Next day. This is the next day after riding in on the donkey. This is his first act. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, when you would come to Jerusalem to make these sacrifices, some people didn't have them because they were just traveling from great distances, but even if you had one, what was one of the requirements in the law? It had to be without spot or blemish, right? If your, if your lamb was all gnarled up, had a broken leg, right, a bunch of acne or something, it said, no, that would not work. It's not without spot or blemish. Now, the shady thing is you would bring it to the priest, and the priest would check it over like when you bring your rental car back, right, to see if there's any dings, any messes, any blemishes. And the, the priest could just simply look at it and go, eh, it's got blemishes. You're like, where? There's no, trust me, there's blemishes. Not going to work. We're not going to accept it. What you need to do is you need to go inside. There are some vendors inside of the temple, which is never the heart if you go back and read the law. There's some vendors in there, and they're selling them for a price. And they would mark up the price of these sacrificial animals, and they'd end up paying like 10 times the original amount. One of the things he underscores here is they sold pigeons, the ones that were selling pigeons. Pigeons and doves were the, were the sacrifice for the, for the poorest of the poor. The ones that Jesus said we are to have a heart for, and they're ripping them off. They, they would charge like a dove, a going rate, like in our modern day equation, would be like a nickel. And they're charging four bucks for a dove, right? It's like dove chocolate. It's a ripoff. I don't want to, I'm not going to go there. So they, they would, they would and, and then, so he's, he's driving them out. Plus there's the table of the money changers. Now, what the money changers were is, see, there was different kinds of money. Remember, they're being ruled by the people of Rome. So there's a couple different currencies going on. Remember the story when Jesus said, render under Caesar what is Caesar's? He said, what's the face on the coin? Well, it was Caesar. This is Roman money. Now, this Roman money could not be spent in the temple for worship purposes. They had to exchange it for, for Jewish money to be able to buy these, these uh, animal sacrifices. And so what they would do is they'd have these money changers in there. And they'd say, yeah, I'll switch it out for you. And they'd mark it up. They'd charge them like 25% just to make the exchange rate for them. So what's going on inside of the temple here? The temple has become a place of robbery, Right? A place where you're just getting ripped off. Everyone's in the temple just trying to make a buck. And I was thinking of like the most corrupt place that I could possibly think of in modern day equivalent to this, and I thought of the movie theater, right? (laughs) You go in there and they have a monopoly on the snacks, right? Oh, tub of popcorn, that's $45, right? We we think that's a fair price. We think that is a good deal. Uh, You talk about corrupt... Uh, and all I'm going to say is if you smuggle candy into the popcorn, into the movie theater, that's between you and Jesus. I'm looking the other way, okay? i just <laughs> looking, not here to judge. So Jesus, he, okay, where are we? Jesus, he, he flips over these tables. He drives out the swindlers, and here's what he has to say. He was teaching to them and saying, it, is it not written, my house shall be a called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You see, the temple represented the meeting place of God and man. This was the place where he would come and he would meet them. This was to be a place that was all about God. This is the center of who they are as a people. And he says, your worship is corrupt. Everything that you are to the core is wrong. 
He says, you've changed it from a house of prayer. You've changed it to a place that's supposed to be all about God, about coming to him rightly, about worshiping him rightly. And you've made it a den of thieves or a den of robbers. He says, you've made it a, a place about making money that you're taking from people instead of giving to them, instead of pointing them to their God. See, the Jews wanted him to come and save them. He wanted to save the, the temple from the Romans. And he goes, no, 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 no. No, I've come to save my father's house from you. You're the ones that have corrupted it, not the Romans. See, what what did God call them to do? He called them to love their neighbor. They're not loving their neighbor here. They're ripping them off. He says, my father is not being worshipped. Money is being worshipped. And I'll tell you what. You want to put your finger on the most sensitive spot in our hearts. You want to talk about money. Do, Do we worship God rightly? Let's take a look at my bank account. Let's take a look at my credit card. Let's take, let's take a look at my attitude toward money because he said you cannot love God and money. Jesus had more to say about money than he had to say about heaven because it touches us to the core of our hearts where we are. And, and, and that's what he's coming to here. Now the story of the temple is sandwiched between this kind of bizarre scene with the fig tree. Okay, if you've read through this story, Jesus comes up to this fig tree and he curses it. And after he cleans the temple, they come back and it's all shriveled up. And you go, what in the world? This is the only parable, that, or the, uh, miracle that I see in the, in the Gospels where it's destructive. Everything else is healing. It's restoring. In this case, Jesus destroys. What's he doing here? Well, I think the, the, the cursing of the fig tree is a symbol. It's a symbol of God's judgment on the sinful, corrupt hearts of the people of Israel. You see, The fig tree, it represents the destruction of the temple because they have violated their covenant with God. Remember what we said in the story? What's the covenant? He says, if you obey my law, I'll bless you. But if you disobey my law, I will curse you. And one of the curses, what I'll destroy the temple and I'll drive you out of the land. If you do not obey my law, and what's the heart of the law? To love God and to love your neighbor. And he says, you don't do either. So I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy this old, corrupt system. You cannot come to me rightly. So Jesus starts this process on Monday by flipping over the tables. And this is just a preview of what's to come. Remember what happens on Friday? What happens on Friday when he dies? The veil that goes into the Holy of Holies is ripped from top to bottom, continuing the destruction of this temple, the old way to God. And then, 40 years later, In 70 AD, the temple will be completely destroyed by the Romans when the Jews attempt to overthrow the Romans. The very thing that they thought Jesus was coming to do, they try to do on their own, and ironically, that's what destroys the temple. And ever since, ever since to this day, 2017, there's never been a temple rebuilt on that site. What Jesus is showing them is, man, you can never come to the Father and worship him rightly under the law. That's what the law was there designed to do, to show that you can't keep the law. None of us in this room can obey those 613 commandments. I can't even keep one of them. Because you could never obey these rules and come to me that way. Why? There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is perfect. The problem is my heart, my sinful, corrupt heart, is unable to keep the law. It says you can never be good enough, but here's, here's the good news. Here's the good news. Jesus... Jesus will show us in this last story that he's come to introduce a new way to the Father. In fact, he says, I represent the temple. You tear me down, and in three days I will be rebuilt. You're going to come through me. And that's the last point of our story, is that Jesus 
is the Savior. You fast forward to Mark chapter 14. He sits down with his disciples for the Passover meal. It's what we call the Last Supper, and we'll see why. This is Thursday night, most likely after dark. And Jesus and his disciples, they celebrate this Passover meal together. This is the closest of his followers. He has this intimate meal with them. This is what we call the Last Supper. You've probably seen this painting of, uh, I keep forgetting to do that. There it is, Thursday. All right. The Last Supper. Uh, the painting by Leonardo da Vinci and a lot of the ripoffs that have been made since then. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a long look at this picture and then erase it from your mind forever. Right? Burn it. Because this is, this, is, this is nothing like what this last scene would have actually looked at. Like, first of all, there were no white boys sitting at the table. Okay? This is the Middle East. Okay? We've got, we got a bunch of Jewish boys. You got dark skin. You got dark curly hair. They didn't have any beards. Okay, not all these precious moment, pale figures that are up here on the screen. Um, also, they weren't sitting up at a table on chairs. The, the table would have been low. And they would have actually been reclining on a bunch of pillows. Just remember when it says John, the one he loved, was up against his, his breast? It's because they're all hanging out, eating the meal on pillows on the floor. Which, by the way, how cool is that of an idea? Why don't we eat on the ground laying on pillows, Right? Like WWJD, right? That's how I want to start eating. Um, and so they're eating on his pillows. It's probably a semicircle of a table, and Jesus was actually at the head of it, not in the middle of it like depicted here. Um, but I digress. So get that picture out of your mind. But what was the original purpose of the Passover meal? What was the purpose of it? You remember, it goes all the way back to Exodus, when they were, they were called to eat this meal to remember the story of God's salvation of the Jewish people from Egypt, right? And there's this Jewish tradition, and it goes on to this day that you would do this at the Passover meal, where the head of the household, they'll sit at the head of the table, and they'll retell the story of the people of Israel. Now, when I picture it, I don't picture this guy. He's like scrawny, okay? I picture like the guy from Fiddler on the Roof, right? Fiddler on the Roof, the big Jewish father. And how cool would it be to be sitting at this table and having your big Jewish father retelling this story? And they'd get animated and the kids would get all into it. And he tells the story of man, 400 years. Our pe- I won't try to do a Jewish accent. That would be, that would be a disaster. Our, 400 years, our people in slavery to, the, to, the, to Pharaoh and, and, his, and his people. And we had to do everything that they said they would whip us they would beat us into submission and under the hot sun day after day we would make these pyramids but then at last God stepped in and he saved us and he started to send these plagues from a person called Moses and he delivered us from from Pharaoh and from the Egyptians and and at the end of these plagues he had this one plague where he said I'm going to kill every firstborn in every house unless you take the the, a, a lamb an innocent lamb it says you kill that lamb in the place of your firstborn and you take the blood and you smear it on your doorpost. And if you do that, the angel of the Lord will pass over your house and your firstborn will not die because of the lamb's blood that was shed in its place. And our people waited and God was faithful and he spared us. And then he says that he took us and he took us out of Egypt and we, he parted this enormous body of water called the Red Sea and pushed us through. And then when the Pharaoh's army tried to follow us, he crushed them, right? And I just imagine, this is not a family-friendly story at all, is it? You imagine these little kids like, my favorite part of the story is when Pharaoh's army drowns, right? Like, I mean, it's like, this is just a story of death and blood and, and sin. And it's, it's messy and it's ugly and it is. But it's also a story of salvation. It's also a story of hope and showing that life comes through death. 
And this was how cool that Jesus, that, that, that God, he, he preserves this truth about himself in the context of a meal over a story. And for 1,500 years, the Egyptians, or excuse me, the Israelites have been retelling the story faithfully year after year after year. And now we come to Jesus. And he sits down at the head of the table. And after 1,500 years of meal and story, meal and story, his disciples laying all over him, he says, I want to tell you a new story. I want to transform the meaning of this meal. See, what we see celebrated here with Jesus and his disciples is the last legitimate Passover and the first communion. Jesus tells him, tomorrow I'm going to die and it's going to change everything. And he tells him the story. And he says, this is the story he tells him. He sits down and he says, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, it broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. This is my body. Remember, at the first Passover, they ate of this bread. Why do they have unleavened bread? Well, God said, you've got to be ready to go. So you don't have time for this yeast to rise to eat your bread. He says, I need flat bread. We've got no time for leaven. You've you got to be ready to go when I say go. Okay? It's like having a power bar or a Pop-Tart on you. He says, you just got to be able to grab it and go. So we've got unleavened bread. But unleavened bread, it also was a symbol. Leaven was a symbol of sin. And he's showing them, man, what you're going to eat is this unleavened bread. It's going to be this holy bread symbolizing that I'm taking you out of Egypt. And I'm going to make you a new holy people set apart from all the other nations. You're going to look different. You're going to look holy. No leaven. And we know how, how far south that little, that little operation went. But Jesus came to this earth. And he says, I have no leaven in me. He was the only sinless man who's ever walked on our planet without any leaven, and he comes and says, I've come to die in your place. Because listen, I, he says, you can't please my father. You cannot worship him rightly. Your worship is corrupt. That's why he cleaned house in the temple. What he says is, I came as the perfect, unleavened offering to die in your place. New story. Then he said he takes a cup, and when he had given thanks, that's why we call it the Eucharist, because he gave thanks. He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He says, this is a new covenant. This is a new covenant. You see, the old covenant was a high priest going into the Holy of Holies, sacrificing the blood of animals on behalf of the people of Israel. Why? Because they failed to obey the law. So the sacrificial system was set in place to show them, man, somebody's got to die for you because you can't keep the law. You can't be good on your own. And it was pointing them forward, right? The blood of the goats and bulls, it could not take away sin. It was a symbol. And he says, man, what's happened now is there's this new high priest, and it's me, and I'm going into the Holy of Holies, but I'm not sacrificing a bull. I'm not sacrificing a goat. What's my sacrifice? Myself. The high priest will lay his life down for you. And because I'm the son of God, because I'm the unleavened bread, because I am perfect, it's not going to be done year after year after year. This sacrifice will be good once and for all. And in Hebrews 9, it tells us that with his own blood, his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time. 
and secured our redemption forever. Amen. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the temple. Are we getting the picture? It's all about Jesus. And the cool thing is, this Passover meal, it was divided into four parts. And each of the parts of the meal uh, were capped by the drinking of some wine. That's right. One meal, four cups of wine. (laughs) The Baptist's jaws are just on the floor, right? Like, what? Now, the first two were diluted, so, you know, whatever you want to do with that. But the reality is, the third cup, and this gets so cool, you guys. The layers are just unending. And the third cup is called the cup of redemption. And it represented, when they would drink this cup, it it was symbolizing the blood of that sacrificial lamb that they had put on the doorpost to save them. Remember, God said the life of, of, of the human being, of the animal, is in its blood. So when the blood would be shed, it symbolized the death of that animal. And when they drank of this cup for the Passover, they were drinking of the shed blood of the lamb. It was this cup, it was this third cup that Jesus takes. He says, this is my blood. This is no longer the picture of God buying back your firstborn for the blood of the animal. This is a symbol of me giving up my blood to purchase you back. And then what's so fascinating is there's this fourth cup called the cup of consummation or the cup of hope. And this would be normally how you would finish the meal, right? It put a period on the celebration. But look at what happens here. After they take the third cup, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't drink the fourth cup. He he leaves a dot, 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 not a period. Now, why does he do that? Some scholars say it's because that Jesus, what did he say in the garden? Take this cup from me. And that he was on the cross being forsaken by the Father. What's happening? God's pouring out his cup of wrath on his son that should have been poured out on us. But I'm not sure if that's the symbol. I think, what, he said, what does he say here? Until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus came to this earth the first time to die, but he came back, he's coming back a second time to capture us as his bride. And what does Revelation say is going to happen? We're going to have this marriage supper of the Lamb, where the people of God, the purchased people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, sit at this marriage supper, and I believe that's when we're going to drink that fourth cup. We're going to have, the, when it's the consummation of all things, the hope that you and I are still looking forward to, Jesus coming back. And on that day, <laughs> he's not going to be riding a donkey. On that day, he's coming on a white horse. You read Revelation 19.11, and he comes on this white horse. This time, he, he means business, right? And he's going to wipe out all those who oppose him. The time to turn to Jesus will be over. And it will be war. And he's going to come with justice and he will rule and reign for a thousand years. And those of us who have placed our trust in him will rule and reign with him for those thousand years. But until that time, until the fourth cup is drinking, we drink of the third cup, the cup of redemption, and we eat of the bread. Why? Well, what did Paul say in Corinthians when he talked about this meal? He says, for as often as you eat this bread and as often as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This word proclaim, it means to, to make known, to reveal, to announce. It says, man, when you partake of this, you are announcing to the world. But I like how uh, N.T. Wright 
he's, a, he's, a, he's a, a Bible scholar, he said it this way. He said, when Paul says that in celebrating this meal, we announce the death of the Lord until he returns, he doesn't mean that it's a good opportunity for preaching. So this isn't just a lesson. This is not just words that we say. And this is, this is so cool. He says he means that the action itself, the taking of the bread and the cup, the thing Jesus told us to do, it announces to principalities and powers, to the unforeseen forces in the world, that Jesus is Lord. And that his cross has won the victory over all evil. And the church, cheered and encouraged by that, can go out to put that victory into practice in the city council, in the classroom, in the unemployment bureau, in the cancer ward, and the peace negotiations. He says this is more than a Sunday school lesson. We're announcing victory. I remember uh, my freshman year, we won the state basketball tournament. First time in Cook Inlet Academy State history. Go Eagles! And I had nothing to do with it. I was a freshman, just a wimpy little freshman on the end of the bench. And in that state championship game, one of our starters fouled out. Coach looks at me, Frankino, you ready? <laughs> I was not ready. So he put a senior in instead of me, and we won the game. Woo! And afterward, what did we do? We went and we celebrated. We went to the, the place where every good Christian celebrates, the Mexican restaurant. <laughs> We're in Anchorage, so we went to La Mex, which is Spanish for the Mex, right? Is that... Franco, is that right? And we partied. Why? Because we just won. Because we're state champions, right? We defeated, we vanquished the foe. And I'm sitting there eating this meal, the celebration, where we're partying, right? No wine, coach was such a, you know, stickler. But we're celebrating. We're celebrating this victory that we had and I had nothing to do with it. I'm just this wimpy little freshman, like, you guys did it, you're awesome, right? Go, go, older guys with hair on your armpits. And I was just so excited to, to celebrate this victory. And guess what, though? Even though I had nothing to do with it, I got to celebrate in it. I got a medal just like nobody knows that I didn't even play, right? These morons just think that I'm just as much of a part of it as the rest of them. I get the trophy. I got to eat the meal. I got to celebrate. Their victory was my victory because I was a part of the team. And Jesus says, what I want all of you guys to do is I want you to celebrate this meal together to announce the victory that I gave you on the cross that you little wimpy freshmen in this gym had nothing to do with. But we celebrate it because his victory is our victory, amen? And we, we drink of this cup and we eat of this bread saying, even though I had nothing to do with my salvation, I can claim victory in Jesus. And how cool that Jesus did not just give us a lecture to retell. He gave us a meal to participate in together. It's not just something he wants us to understand. It's something that he wants us to participate in. And the ushers are going to grab the, the bread and the cup right now, and, and we're going to do this together. So cool how God orchestrates these things. We actually were supposed to do bread and the cup last week, uh, and just didn't happen. One thing led to another, and it got pushed back to this week. Just happens to fall on this week. We do a six-week rotation, and how cool that this just lined up with uh, the bread and the cup. If you had a good pastor that thought ahead, I probably would have just planned that, but I just really need the Holy Spirit as I walk forward. Um, 
And so we're going to take this. And, and typically we go back and, and we kind of, you know, we, we make our little loops and we grab it and bring it back. But this time we're going to have the ushers come up and we're going to serve you. We'll just pass it like kind of like we do the offering plates. You'll take the bread and then you'll take the cup. And then I'll lead us through a time of taking it um, together. Because what we're here to do, what we're here to do together is we're here to take this communion. Jesus ended the old story of the Passover. The old story was Israel's story that through a lamb, through the sacrificial lamb, Yahweh rescued the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh. That this animal, he saved them, that he spared the lives of the Israelites and took instead the, the, the life of this animal so that they would be spared of God's wrath and they would be able to exit the exodus from slavery to the Egyptians. But today, what we're going to do here is the new story that Jesus told us. It's that through Jesus, Yahweh rescues the world not just the Jewish people. He did not come to smite the Romans. He came to unite us with the Romans, Jew and Gentile, one people that he came to save from slavery to sin and death. See, what Jesus came to do is to tell us this new story. And we need to be reminded of this story every day. You know why? Because of our tendency to forget it. Because by the end of this day, I'm going to go back and try to do things in my way, in my strength, on my own, I'm going to try to win God's affections because of how good of a person I am. I'm going to try to defeat sin in my, my own strength. I'm going to be that corrupt worshiper like the Jewish people. And I need to be reminded of what Jesus did for me. Now, we celebrate the 500th anniversary this, uh, this, this month of the Protestant Reformation, right? Martin Luther and his 95 theses. And one of, the thing that they, the, one of the things that they stood against was what we call transubstantiation. It's the Catholic belief that the people were actually eating the physical bread of, God, of the flesh of Jesus, drinking his blood. And that was the idea that this, that this bread that we took was actually Jesus' body. That this blood was, that this wine or this grape juice for us was actually Jesus' blood. But we don't believe that. It's part of the, the Reformation that we have as we believe this is a symbol. When Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, the Greek word there is, it's a symbol. It represents my body. It represents my blood. It was not actually his blood and his body, what we believe from scripture. So we take this. We take this. And what does Paul say when we do this? And you guys can go ahead and come up and start passing it. He said, do this in remembrance of me. You see, when we do this, we do this to remember our God, remember our Savior, but not like, I mean, I was thinking about Tom Petty died this last week, right? And, and we, we've do, I've done things in remembrance of Tom. I, I sang Free Fallen in my car at the top of my lungs, right? Just because of how much I loved Tom Petty. We do things, you know, here lies Tom Petty. And we, we do things in remembrance of him. He was a good man, but now he's gone. But when we, do, when we do this in remembrance of Jesus, we're not doing this as though he died. That we stand by Jesus' grave and say, here lies Jesus, a good man. When we take of this and remember Jesus, we are celebrating that Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. That Jesus is living today, and he's right here. Do we believe this? That as we participate in this meal of victory, that we believe that Jesus is here today, that he's inside of me, that he's inside of you.